My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Of the four utterances that Jesus makes from the cross, it's undoubtedly this one, isn't it, that encapsulates really the, the horror and the deep suffering that Jesus endured. And this is what we're considering this Good Friday evening. We're considering the sufferings of Christ. Before we dive into the text, a couple of apologetics things to mention for you. In this text in Mark, uh, we read that Jesus was crucified uh, rather at the third hour. And just to be clear, on the timings of that, uh, the three synoptic Gospels use slightly different timings than John uses. So, for example, in John's Gospel, you'll read that Jesus is taken to Pilate at the sixth hour, whereas here you read that he's crucified at the third hour. How can those two things be reconciled? Surely they're in irreconcilable. However, the Jews used a slightly different way of timing the day than we do today. So the Jews would time from sunrise, whereas the Greeks and the Romans would start their day at midnight, as you and I do. And so when the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, say that Christ is crucified at the third hour, that means the third hour since sunrise, which would be approximately nine in the morning and therefore there is no contradiction so when John's gospel says that Jesus is taken to Pilate at the sixth hour that is six hours from midnight so 6 a.m. as the sun is rising therefore all the gospels agree Jesus is crucified at 9 a.m. in the morning uh, following an extraordinarily packed night when we consider that he's in the Garden of Gethsemane at sundown um, on the Thursday evening. He's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is then taken through three separate Jewish trials and then three Roman trials, if you will. Uh, one, two before Pilate, one before Herod. It's been a very busy night for Jesus. He's been beaten. He's been kept awake. Uh, he's already endured embarrassment, um, humiliation at the hands of people he, he created. So by the time we reach the morning uh, of his crucifixion, he has already endured much suffering. So we must remember at the point of addressing Jesus' suffering... We have to make two observations, well one in fact, it's simply this, is that, that Jesus' sufferings are both physical and they are spiritual. Jesus' sufferings are not simply physical, neither are they simply spiritual, they are both. At which point, uh, at the point he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's already been on the cross for six hours. He cries this out at around about three in the afternoon. And 
the whole area we we're told has been dark the whole region has been dark for three hours since 12 o'clock in Psalm 22 we hear um, my God my God why have you forsaken me why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning from my groaning now the Hebrew word used there translated groaning into the English language is more often translated as roaring or literally screaming it's far more often translated as roaring or screaming than it is groaning groaning is rather a soft English translation for that Hebrew word and that roaring word is actually the word used sometimes for the roar of a lion in the Old Testament and so I don't think it's any coincidence that Mark records for us Jesus crying out in a loud voice this is the roaring of Christ upon the cross this is his screaming his crying out on the cross this is not me groaning that we're witnessing here he cries out in a loud voice my God my God why have you forsaken me and as Dean read earlier these words are actually the first verse of the 22nd Psalm a Psalm of David of King David who ruled obviously around about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus the psalm was written hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented as a form of capital punishment. And yet we read in this psalm, don't we? In verse 16, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. We also read, of course, that the man of Psalm 22's clothes have been divided up, just as Jesus's were divided up. We're reading the prophecy of the Holy Spirit written a thousand years before the events they describe. Psalm 22 along with Isaiah 53 is perhaps the clearest prophetic witness of the suffering of Jesus Christ in order to save his people. I think we need to pay attention brothers and sisters to the physical suffering in order to get to the spiritual suffering. We can't bypass one to get to the other. We must consider them both together this evening. Crucifixion I'm sure you're all very familiar with the word. You will have seen perhaps many portrayals of Jesus' crucifixion through your life. But it is worth saying, and it serves us to say, that crucifixion was indeed a brutal and inhumane way to die. It was designed to achieve maximum pain and suffering in the bodies of those unfortunate enough to experience it. Nails were driven through the wrists, in fact. We often see it portrayed as being through the palm of the hand. However, many subsequent experiments have been done and also lots of historical research done on the actual anatomical position where the nails were driven through. And it's found most often, uh, well, it's found indeed to be that it was through the wrist. There's, there's a gap through the bones in the wrist into which the nail was driven. The nail would have severed a particular nerve in the wrist, causing the thumbs to be forced inwards to the palms. So this effectively would have meant that the victim of crucifixion would have been hanging 
the full weight of their body hanging on severed nerves until they passed away. When you also consider that there was another nail driven through the feet, or rather the uh, front of the feet, the ankle region, which again would have passed through the bones but severed nerves, you're thinking about somebody's entire body weight hung upon shredded nerves. And I think that's something that we often pass by. This was an excruciatingly, and that word excruciating, of course, comes from cruciatus, crucifixion, an excruciatingly painful death. Usually the death came from either suffocation or from heart failure. There have been lots of experiments of people interested to find out how the body would hold up under crucifixion. Most often they find that these are the leading causes of death. The crucifixion victim had the chest cavity forcibly put into the inhale position as they hung on the cross. So it was actually breathing out that was difficult to do. In order to breathe out, you had to push up onto your feet, which of course were nailed, in order to breathe out and then sink back down and breathe in again. So you're talking about doing that every time you want to take a breath of fresh air, you're having to endure that pain. Add to that the fact that Jesus' crucifixion was different. Jesus' crucifixion was different in the sense that we know that he was beaten and we know from the gospel record here in Mark 15 that he was scourged and Mark's gospel doesn't take the time to tell us what scourging is or go into detail about it and as I've said before we mustn't think of scourging as something like a whipping you know uh, scourging was done with an instrument called a Roman flagrum a flagrum was effectively a, uh, a piece of leather with leather cords attached and these uh, leather cords would have pieces of bone, jagged bits of metal and rock inserted into them. And then the victim would be whipped with the flagrum. And we, we, we have record from historians, from Josephus and many other Roman historians of the first century telling us the results of a Roman scourging. And they tell us that this was not merely like a whipping, but indeed that the victim's internal organs were often laid bare to the elements that it laid bare the rib cage, the bones. So we're talking about Jesus having to not only have endured a beating, but also have been scourged in the praetorium immediately uh, prior to his crucifixion. Um, so we're talking about an, uh, an unbelievable amount of physical pain that Jesus endured for us. So as he cries out six hours into that crucifixion, you can only imagine what energy that would have taken. You have been effectively slowly suffocating for six hours and Jesus roars out on the cross in his final moments. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some believe actually that Jesus perhaps recited the entire psalm while on the cross. I don't think there's any concrete evidence to suggest that, but some believe that that did happen. And I do think it's interesting that in other Gospels, I think it's in John, we get um, tetelestai, which is a Greek perfect verb, which means it is finished as the final um, saying from the cross. And it is interesting that Psalm 22 ends with, he has done it, isn't it? 
that is rather interesting. And I think some people have perhaps built on that to suggest that he actually read the entire psalm. Psalm 22, 31. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. It's proper, of course, when we read these psalms, brothers and sisters, to understand that they are, of course, also written about David. They were written about David. David obviously felt forsaken by God, and in a certain way he was afflicted. But in Jesus' view, as he recites this on the cross, what's happening is Jesus is appropriating that psalm to himself as he does, obviously, in the synagogue uh, when he, he reads out, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He's appropriating this scripture and he's saying, this psalm is about me. I am the subject of this psalm. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? I love the story of Jesus walking the Emmaus Road with these two disciples and he opens the scriptures to them and their hearts burned within them and Jesus exegeted the scripture and showed them that he was truly the subject of the entire Bible. Cover to cover, right through the spine of your Bible, Jesus is what every verse points to. Jesus is the subject of Psalm 22. And of course we know that David prophesied about this. There was perhaps even a sense that David knew this was not wholly about him, but he was pointing to the one who was to come. He was leaning in to the promised Messiah in this psalm. He spoke prophetically. So another interesting thing to remember is that your Bible is a book of prophecy. The Bible is not merely a historical textbook. It's not a collection of fables and religious writings, but it is a prophetic book. This is one of the greatest proofs of Jesus' messiahship is that his death was prophesied about thousands of years before it actually took place. His birth, the whereabouts of that birth, Significant details about the manner of his life and his mission are revealed in the Old Testament hundreds of years before these things took place. It's remarkable when you think about it, isn't it? That we serve a God who operates in the prophetic, that he reveals his truth to us, his church, his children. It's a wonderful truth. But to come back to it again, we can't ignore that this psalm is also something that meant something to David, that he felt forsaken by God. In his darkest moments, he was led to even feel abandoned by God. I wonder whether many of you have felt that same thing in your most difficult moments, whether you maybe feel abandoned by God, you feel left alone. And we know, because in the very next psalm, that neither David nor ourselves are ever truly abandoned and forsaken by God. Psalm 23 verse 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Hallelujah. Again, in Psalm 37, David says, I've been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. There is a truth, and that is that you in this life are never utterly forsaken by God. Every breath that we breathe is a grace of God. We're never fully 
forsaken this side of glory. There's only one human that experienced the closest thing to being fully abandoned by God, this side of glory, and that is Jesus in this very moment. Nobody will ever experience the level of separation from God that Jesus experienced in that moment. Surely this was not total separation, but it was indeed an abandonment which was real and was felt by Jesus in these moments. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 is perhaps a a good parallel text to look at when we consider what's happening in these moments on the cross, in the final minutes of Jesus' earthly life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, to be sin, not just to carry but to be. Did you catch that? To be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. There is an exchange happening in these final moments on the cross. And this is what we are looking at when Jesus cries out these horrifying words. He is carrying sin. He has been made to become sin. Isaiah 53 verses 4 to 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. That he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We know that this abandonment that Jesus felt in that moment was desperate. It was horrible. It was the blackest moment of his earthly existence. Charles Spurgeon called it the black night of Jesus' life on earth. I think that we're more aware perhaps of Jesus' physical sufferings on the cross and we don't always readily appreciate this suffering that he went through, the spiritual suffering. I think that's because we're sinful. I think that's because we're thinking with sinful mind. <laughs> when I say that, I don't mean that there's some kind of sin that you're preoccupied with right now, but it's simply to say that each one of us is born into sin into original sin, the sin of Adam, and therefore our perspective is skewed by that sinfulness. Our reasoning abilities are skewed, and particularly in the area of holiness. When we consider the holiness of God, we consider it through the cracked lens of our soul. And that truth is refracted, and it's difficult to see. And that's why we come to the Word of God, isn't it? An infallible, an inerrant Word to learn about these things, since we don't see them properly with our own reasoning abilities we don't appreciate them because we don't fully understand holiness Jesus is the perfect holy one imagine this he has never sinned I don't know about you but I've sinned tens of thousands of times repeatedly I've fallen into sin I find it hard to imagine a moment lived in Jesus's life where there is not even a shadow of turning, not even a spot 
of darkness. Tempted, yes, but without sin. As hard for me to imagine. Jesus, this perfect, holy man, is suddenly bearing the weight of all of my thousands of sins. He's bearing the weight of all of your sins. He's bearing the sins of all the world upon him at that moment. I don't think there's any other way to kind of explain that. There's no easy pictorial thing that I can just draw up for you right now to help you understand that. The best I came across is perhaps um, Stephen Lawson's explanation, which is about the shock of that experience for Jesus. And he said it's something like this. You have to imagine some Maasai shepherd living out in Kenya under the beating sun every day, shepherding their flock. Imagine that person taken out of the noonday heat of Kenya and dropped into the Arctic Ocean straight away. You imagine the shock of that, not being able to breathe, not, not knowing what's hit you. And this is a poor, a poor example of what it meant for Jesus to bear sin. But it gives us at least an inkling of maybe what that was like. Moreover, not just did Jesus, not only rather did Jesus bear our sins, but he also experienced in these moments God's wrath upon those sins. He had previously only experienced God's pleasure. We remember at his baptism, don't we? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus had lived his entire life on earth and, of course, for eternity past in the manifest presence of God. He is the one in whom God is well pleased and now at this moment he has become sin and the Father's wrath is turned against him. The Father isn't... I think sometimes we get lost because we... Um, we understand that something is happening here between the Father and the Son. There is a separation or something like that. And there's a famous hymn, Stuart Tannen says, the Father turns his face away. And there is a truth to that. But it's worse than that for Jesus. It's not that the Father turns his face away. It's that the, it's the Father is facing him on with his wrath. Because at this point, Jesus is the sin bearer. He is the perfect sacrifice for sin. And just as... When we read the story of uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel and the fire falls on the sacrifice because that sacrifice was pleasing to God, here we have the ultimate sacrifice for sin, ultimately pleasing in the eyes of God, and we have the fire of God's wrath falling down on Jesus in these moments. Because we're sinful creatures, brothers and sisters, it's hard for us to grasp this, but this is reality, and this makes sense of us, makes sense for us these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think when we think of God's holiness, we, we, we have to refer to the Bible. Otherwise, these moments can sound so confusing to us. How can a loving God have wrath upon sin? How can a loving God punish sin in this horrific manner? There are some theologians who go to, so far as to call this cosmic child abuse. Steve Chalk and, and, and others, Brian Zand. To do this would be to misunderstand the fact that it's not simply the Father in, involved in this act of reconciliation. 
The cross is a Trinitarian act of salvation. The Son is as much involved in the cross as the Father. The Son is a willing sacrifice. So this isn't Jesus the good guy versus God the Father the nasty guy. Jesus is a willing sacrifice laying down his life for the sins of the world. We also have to understand that God as a Trinitarian God hates sin. Hates sin. And this is something we don't understand. This, this is something we don't get because we, we learn to hate sin as Christians but, but we don't start hating sin. We don't start hating sin. We're born into sin. We certainly don't hate sin as much as God hates sin. So it's difficult for us to understand these things because they are holy things. But in Psalm 5, verse 4 to 6, we read this, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Think of this. It just took one sin, one sin by one man to put the entire human race under the judgment of God. One sin. One sin. And I think about how many times I sin within any given week. God takes sin personally. We know this. David's Psalm 51 says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Each one of us is guilty before this holy God who hates sin. I want you to hear this today on Good Friday. I want you to see this. And this is where people get confused here and start to think that we don't believe anymore in a God of love because we say these things. But I think it's only through the lens of God's holiness that we understand His deep love and compassion for us. Without the lens of holiness, it's difficult to comprehend the depth of God's love his adopting love for us. We know from John 3.16, it says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. In fact, the Greek there isn't for God so loved the world. It's actually literally for God loved the world in this manner. It's pointing to the cross, that verse is. For God in this manner loved the world. The love of God is displayed in the cross. Why? Because the full weight of his wrath and righteous anger against all of your sin and my sin and the sins of the world was vented in this one place, at this one point in history. That's love. That's love. Love looked like something 2,000 years ago. It's not sentimental. It's violent love. Extreme love. I want for us to be honest with the Bible and what it says about God, brothers and sisters, and not hide from it. God is love, but God is holy. God is merciful, 
but God is vengeful. Your Bible says these things about the Lord, about Yahweh, and it serves us to know them and not run from passages that talk about His judgment. If you're listening to this and you don't know God, you don't know Jesus, I want you to know His love. I do. But first I need you to understand that God is angry with your sin every day. And your sins must be punished because He is a holy God. And when you see, when you see that, when you understand that you literally in and of yourself have no hope for justification before God on your own. You have no hope. When you see that and you understand the desperation of your situation before a holy, righteous, just God, it's only then that you're going to reach out for Jesus, for the substitute, because God in His love provided for you. If you were the only person in the world, He would have provided Jesus for you. He provides a substitute for you. That's the love of God. That's the center of the love of God. We have to understand the cross is a message both of God's holiness and of God's love at the same time. And for the unbeliever, we've got to remember that God will have justice. God will have justice. Psalm 7 verse 12 and 13 is perhaps two of the most sobering verses of the entire Bible. Listen to this. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. When's the last time you saw that put on a fridge magnet? Every sinner is in the crosshairs of God's wrath. Not just the sin, but the sinner too. I want you to see this. There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. There's no knowing God without Jesus. There's no going to heaven apart from through Jesus. You can't meet with God other than through this rugged cross. You know, I hear it preached a lot, that God is a provider, and I believe that. And I believe God will provide for your needs. The Bible teaches that. The Bible teaches that there's nothing that's too small for Him to care about in your prayer life. He provides for you your food. He provides for you your clothing. He provides finance for you to get what you need in this life. God cares about all of those things. God is a provider. As it's preached often, Jehovah Jireh is one of his names. We read about that in Genesis 22 when Abraham calls him that. He calls him Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. But where we go wrong so often is we preach Jehovah Jireh but we miss the point of what God was actually saying he was providing for us. 
it's not just a BMW. It's not just financial prosperity. It's not just blessing and increase. When Abraham called God Jehovah Jireh, do you know why he was calling him Jehovah Jireh? Because God had just provided something for him. What did he provide? A ram caught in a thicket. And that ram was the sacrificial substitute for his own son, Isaac. Jehovah Jireh, God will provide, is about Jesus. I want you to read this with me and we'll finish up. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. Take your son, your only son Isaac, who you love. Go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took, the hand, sorry, took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar and laid the wood in order and bound, his, bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. I want you to understand this. Roughly 2,000 years after the Lord provided Abraham with a sacrifice as a substitute for his son, God provided the ultimate sacrifice in those same mountains. Geographically, the same place within a stone's throw of where Abraham found that ram in a thicket. God came through on his promise and provided the ultimate sacrifice in Jesus. And this is why we call this day good. This is why Friday, this Friday is good. Because God has provided you and myself and everyone here listening with a perfect sacrifice for their sins. He's provided us with a righteousness which is from God. It doesn't just acquit us of our sins, but it puts us in the black. It puts us in a position of righteousness before God. This is what Martin Luther realized when he read Romans 
one all those years ago said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Brothers and sisters, before we finish, I want to leave us with this wonderful yet sobering truth. We know that for every single person born into this world, an account must be given for our sins. Those sins will be judged in one of two places, either in the individual themselves or in the person of Jesus Christ. Those are the only two places where their sins will meet retribution. That's the only two places where an account will be made for sin. My question is this. Where have your sins met with their accounting? How will your sins be paid for on that day? None of us know the day of the Lord's coming. None of us know the day that we will be called out of this world. But be sure of this, it will happen. Will you bear on yourself the burden of your sin? Or will you trust in the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, to bear your sins for you? Let's be sure that of all the things we know, we know the answer to that question the most. I'm going to invite Pippa up and the worship team. Let's pray. God, we think about this event in history, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we want to see ourselves on that cross. We want to see our sins paid for on the cross. As we sang that hymn earlier, Oh, precious is the flow that made me white as snow. And we sang nothing but the blood of Jesus. Lord, let that be our confession. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That we will not trust in anything else for our salvation but the blood that was shed 2,000 years ago on that cross. My prayer is, Lord, that if there's anybody listening in today who doesn't yet know Jesus, that their hearts would be warmed and opened, that your spirit would be active upon them to draw them to yourself. And for those of us who are already Christians, who know this sacrifice is for us, Lord, let us glory in the love that you've poured out upon us. Knowing that this love is something that we can never truly fathom, this side of glory, that God the Father gave His only begotten Son for me, for me, with all of my sins and imperfections and failures and all of my unfaithfulness, God was faithful to give His Son for me. And Lord, we pray that we take that love to our hearts today and receive of it and be glad in it. We pray all this in your mighty name. Amen. Amen.